Just a quick note. In this episode, we discuss how the Inflation Reduction Act may or may not help schools. This episode was recorded right before the bill passed the Senate, and at the time of publication, the bill has yet to pass the House. Now for the start of the show. Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at SchoolStatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 226, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, the Inflation Reduction Act is a massive bill, but is there anything in there for K-12 education? Stay with us. the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, could blended learning give you a better work-life balance? Our guest says it has that potential, and she'll give us some tips. Nicorigo here, and I'm joined by friend, Chief Academic Officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed Podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I am fantastic. I bet you're saying every time we start, she is always in such a great mood. But I get excited when we do our um, sessions, and I'm just excited about the new school year. Yeah, and you're in the new school year. You guys are on the new calendar, the one that goes basically all year round with some breaks in the between. How is it going so far? Well, it's not a year-round calendar. It's modified. Okay. Um, we did start uh, July the 22nd, so we're in our second full week of instruction. But we have some additional um, off days scheduled into the calendar that benefits students and teachers. Um, we still have the month of June off and half of July. Is it being well received, you think, so far? Or are you hearing? Absolutely. I yeah. think so. I mean, there's quite a few school districts in our area mm-hmm. um, in South Mississippi that have adopted this calendar, some um, before this year. And so there's been a lot of positivity, haven't gotten really any complaints, um, questions answered quite easily. And I'm actually in the process of planning for our uh, intercession that we will offer during uh, the last week in September. I saw on our Secretary of State's uh, Facebook page, Delbert Hoseman, he posted a meeting that he had with the superintendent of, of education from Lamar County, who did the this similar schedule last year. And Hoseman was applauding uh, Lamar County superintendent. And the superintendent was saying that since they've done this, uh, new calendar, they feel like test scores are up, or I guess he had some data to back that up. And he also said teacher retention has been better. So that was interesting. Well, we're looking to measure those same things. We want to see how it impacts overall student achievement. But that's the key piece that I want people to also recognize. You know, I saw a comment recently on Facebook that said, um, in defense of teachers, by the way, oh, so you're already not paying teachers enough money and now you're making them work in July. And, you know, I try not to get into those types of discussions on social media, but I was quite proud to share 
that I wanted them to look at it through a different lens. During the two weeks that we have built into the fall and the two weeks that are built into the spring, it's an opportunity for teachers to reset. Mm -hmm. They are not required to work the intercession. They can apply, be selected, and serve that small group of students that we're going to serve during intercession. But for many of them, they will get those two weeks off to do with, you know, as they please. And that is great for their mental health. Yeah, no doubt. When I remember picking up... um my daughter Isla at the start of those two week breaks and you could see the smile on the teacher's faces. It was almost like you're going into a summer break. Like, you know, it was just like, Mm -hmm. all right, enjoy the break. You know, we'll see you in two weeks. And I don't know. I think that's a good feeling. So uh, hopefully that continues. I think that's going to continue to spread throughout the country really. But I know we've talked a lot about that before on here. I've got a um, little bit of information I wanted to share with folks because, you know, there's this bill that um, is getting closer to passage. The one I think that kind of surprised everyone where Manchin was out and now he's in. Apparently, he was negotiating with Chuck yeah. Schumer. Um, and it's a lot of climate stuff in there. But I think the actual technical term for the bill is like the Inflation Reduction Act is what they're calling it. Correct. Um, well, you know, originally when Biden was trying to push through his uh, Build Back Better uh, bills, uh, there was a lot of stuff in there for um, schools that were in the original um, kind of proposals. Well, unfortunately, a lot of that has been stripped out. But um, there is a few little tiny nuggets kind of deep, like 600 pages into the 725-page bill that might slightly... Little affect- tiny nuggets in 700 pages, and only you would find them. Yeah, right? So <laughs> so here's here's what we've got so far. Apparently, um, I don't want anyone to get too excited because the spending amount that we're talking about here is one-tenth of 1% of the total bill, which is a $369 billion bill. The bill proposes $37.5 million in grants and another $12.5 million in technical assistance to help schools and, quote, low-income and disadvantaged communities monitor and reduce air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions and develop environmental action plans. So what that exactly means is the jury's still out on there, but it looks like some money could be coming in that regard in terms of air pollution. Well, be real careful because when money comes, so does responsibility and task. What exactly would they expect of school districts to do in that regard? Right. Well, Any verbiage in there? Well, so uh, schools in America annually emit 72 million tons of carbon dioxide, equivalent to the output of 8 million homes, according to this article I'm reading in Edweek, or it's about 18 coal plants. So according to an analysis of the U.S. Department of Energy data by the advocacy group Generation 180, air quality has been a major concern for districts as the spread of COVID-19 stress schools outdated ventilation systems. So I think maybe updating... Something to do with like. So you just brought it home for me. So that just makes me think about air conditioning, circulation, HVAC systems, um, things of that nature. And that would be really awesome. And perhaps what they would do is then monitor our attendance rating, maybe our COVID numbers, even flu numbers to see if there's a, a positive impact on decreasing those numbers. Right. And, and again, the, the money, I mean, I don't want to like scoff at 37.5 million and then another it's not a lot it makes you wonder just how many schools they're going to select but whoever they do select to be honest with you that's pretty awesome all right now there's we can't afford to fix it ourselves you're right no doubt and and there's also some stuff in there about uh school bus replacement um but but this one's not everybody so i think some people might be disappointed in this it says nonprofit school transportation associations are among the groups that would be able to apply for 400 million dollars in grants Ah. to replace existing vehicles with low emissions equivalents like electric school buses it says states 
municipalities, and Native American tribes are also listed as eligible applicants, but school districts are not. So I guess nonprofit school transportation associations, yeah. I mean, wh- who are they? Yeah, so, you know, after school programs, different things like that. And I think that's a good thing. Right. Okay. And then the other one is what I would call a possible indirect uh, effect, possibly to teachers. And it's just tax credits, essentially, for um, electric vehicles. So it's like if teachers um, would consider buying an electric vehicle, you could get up to a tax credit of $7,500 for people who purchase new vehicles or 4000 if you buy a used electric okay. vehicle. Um, the reason I bring that up is because there are some school districts, um, apparently like Austin, Texas and Los Angeles that are offering electric vehicle charging stations on campus. Um, so we'll see. If I that- think that's pretty awesome. I just want to, you know, I'd like to meet some of the teachers that are able to afford electric vehicles. Right. You know, well, okay. But let's say this, like if you had a, um, if they make a, a electric vehicle, which I believe in the near future, you'll have one that's probably like $37,500. In the next 10 years? No, I think within the next couple of years, I think we're going to get there. I mean, Tesla has been talking about making a vehicle that's going to be in the $30,000 price range for a while now. It hasn't actually come to fruition. That would be great. Yeah. And so if you could get a $7,500 credit, next thing you know, you have a $30,000 vehicle. The only thing that's weird for me is I like the idea of putting charging um, on campus, but I... I don't really know. It's going to impact school costs, I'm sure. That, and I don't really know that you need to charge on campus unless you have a really long commute because th- most people who are charging their electric vehicles are charging them at home, just in their garage or whatever. So. And maybe it is for those who travel more than 15 miles um, to a school. But let me ask you this. Do you happen to know how long it takes to charge a vehicle? Well, it depends. So if you're on a supercharger, you can charge it anywhere from 10 minutes to, you know, as much as like 45 minutes. But most mm-hmm. of the chargers in your home, it takes about eight hours. Okay. And that is equivalent to the amount of time a teacher is within a building. So if you pull up and plug up, pretty much your car is going to be there all day. And, and I guess I would say, all right, let's l- let me remove what I was just saying, saying that most people charge at home. Well, imagine if you lived in an apartment, maybe an electric vehicle yeah. wouldn't be possible because you can't really ins- charge a at your apartment, you know, unless they have no. some there. So this might make it more likely for somebody to buy one if they're like, well, well, I'll charge at school, you know? So. Well, not only that, maybe they'll need to tell us a little bit more about the superchargers because for me, time is so precious. I have so many things to do in a day. I would rather, if I'm going to invest in an electric vehicle, I want the supercharger so I can get it done and go on and finish tasks or running errands after work. Yeah, superchargers are, you know, they're kind of popping up in cities. Uh, there's one here in our little town of Hattiesburg, um, but they're not likely to end up at schools. They're so expensive. It's also, yeah. um, technically, the superchargers that Tesla use are, they use DC current rather than AC, and um, it's a little harder on the battery when you go to a supercharger, so it's not really recommended that you supercharge all the time. It's better to use no, the typical but if one, I'm in so. a box and I need to get it done quickly, I right. can have that option. Absolutely. And then if not, then I can just plug it up overnight and uh, head to work the next day. There was one other area of funding I wanted to touch on, and this one's outside of that bill. Um, so apparently there's nearly $300 million in new grants aimed to bolster mental health services in schools. And this was announced by the Department of Education recently. Um, this is an article dated July 29th, um, so just a few days ago. Um, but just saying that schools can access funding for mental health services through two new U.S. Department of Education grants that aim to build a pipeline uh, of support in schools. Uh, I think this is a good thing, right? Like everyone would agree with this, right? I think that they would agree with it. I think they need probably just a little bit more information. Well, and, you know, it was a few episodes back, gosh, maybe five or six episodes back, we actually did a um, interview with 
a doctor who represents a startup um, where they offer counseling services and stuff. Uh-huh. And I think we're going to see more and more of these type of companies kind of come together where it's like K through 12 remote counseling, remote, you know, even maybe writing a prescription remotely, you know, telehealth type mm-hmm. stuff. I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of happen. As as you see money out there, often companies mm-hmm. pop up to, to have a little taste of that money. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think they might be able to No, I think service. it'll be extremely helpful. There are just a number of things, you, you know, questions that would need to be answered when you think about, um, say, serving uh, teenagers um, and teachers and confidentiality and just making sure all of those, you know, important firewalls are in place. I could see, though, um, school clinics almost having like a next level beyond the nurse of like a private room or something where you could like mm-hmm. walk in and sit down in front of a computer and talk to a different type of professional or specialist. To be a part of their weekly plan to get a session in. Right. Um, at school, no different than some students who have to regularly see the nurse, either to take medication or to have, you know, an assistive device checked or something like that. I think that that would be really um, helpful to help them get through that, you know, second part of the day um, when they start experiencing difficulty or fatigue with being in the instructional environment. All right. Well, so the money seems to be there. We'll see how it plays out. Christina, are you ready for today's Brad Idea? I am. Our guest in today's Brad Idea segment is a thought leader in the world of blended learning. Catlin Tucker has authored several books on the subject, and her newest book is called Balance with Blended Learning. Catlin, welcome back to Class Dismissed. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, we had you on a, uh, a couple years ago. It was a great episode. And um, as I kind of look through everything, I-, I see this overarching theme for for blended learning that comes from you. And it, it seems to be that, you know, one, it, it, it's a great experience for the students, but also equally, if not more importantly, it gives teachers some of their life back. Am I right about that? I think it definitely has the potential to do that. And, and so when you say that and potential, like, <laughs> how can that happen? Because I think that that's an appealing thing for teachers who are constantly bringing work home, right? Oh, absolutely. So I think for me, so I'm, I, I joke all the time that like, I really didn't have any business writing this book at this point in my life, just because I'm, I'm was in the middle of my actual coursework for my doctoral program. And I was still doing a lot of coaching and training and speaking at events. And I was engaging with all these teachers who were having a slightly different experience with blended learning than I had had, where the blend, they perceive blended learning as a lot more work. And I couldn't understand why that was. And then as I started to get into classrooms in my coaching capacity, I realized that teachers were still doing the lion's share of the work in classrooms. The way in which we have traditionally approached kind of the the workflows in education where teacher assigns an assignment, you have 150 kids do it, you collect those assignments, you process them, you input the data in the gradebook, you pass it back. Those traditional workflows and, and still a lot of teacher talking and students listening it does put a lot of the burden on teachers. And so my experience with blended learning had been totally different where I felt more that I was partnering with students. I was sharing the responsibility with learning for them. I was using the models in really dynamic ways to try to create space in my classroom. So I wasn't at the front of the room. I was sitting side by side with kids and giving feedback as they worked or conferencing about the goals that they had set and where they were in progress toward accomplishing those goals or pulling them into a side-by-side assessment conversation where I was grading their work 
as they sat next to me. And I thought, gosh, I want teachers to have the experience I had, but I think it requires this whole mind shift around how we view our role in education as the teacher and how we view the student role in the classroom and what responsibilities do we each own and which ones do we share. And so the book was really born out of this desire to help teachers see how they can leverage these models and use technology strategically to create the time and space, yeah, to move some of that work that they've traditionally taken home into the classroom, be more thoughtful about what we grade and why we're grading it, um, and what role can students start to play in thinking about their learning, tracking their progress, reflecting on what's happening in this space. So that's why I wrote it. <laughs> well, and, and the way you answered that question originally, when you said it has the potential to kind of, you know, give you some of your life back, you must have known or, or seen experiences where maybe people bit off more than they can chew. I mean, do you have any guidance to kind of avoid um, those pitfalls of maybe trying to take this on too aggressively? Absolutely. So it's interesting in the in the first chapter of Balance with Blended Learning, I talk about grades and the way traditional grading practices reinforce so much of kind of the status quo in education, the way we teach, where we spend our time and energy, and how I think it's actually really counterproductive for us, for students. And so I start with this conversation about rethinking What is driving our grading practices? Because I think if you're moving into this blended space, hopefully that means you're differentiating more more consistently. You're you're looking towards personalizing the learning experience for kids, and you're starting to rethink your role as not this person who has all the information and orchestrates the entire lesson, but rather this kind of architect of learning experiences and this coach, a coach who sits next to kids and supports them with developing skills. But what I was seeing were absolutely teachers biting off more than they could chew, um, really struggling to let go of some of those traditional roles of, you know, kind of fountain of knowledge. And so even teachers who would have like a station rotation happening in their room, which is kind of a, a pretty manageable model for teachers who are moving from more of a traditional approach to a blended approach, they were still using their entire teacher-led station to just talk and transfer information for to kids. And they weren't necessarily using that station to give feedback, to coach kids, to pull individuals and, and work with them one-on-one to, to provide the additional scaffolding and support that they needed. And so they're still like on all period and they're not necessarily feeling as effective as I would like them to. And they're not moving some of those, those assignments that they would traditionally have taken home and graded or given feedback and isolation. They weren't moving that into the classroom and they were still primarily the person in the room doing the thinking about what, what learning was happening in that space. Are there signs where that a teacher can see while they're trying to roll this out where they go, all right, this is working. Like, should you be looking for certain feedback from your students? Is there any oh, those aha moments? Absolutely. Well, I would love for feedback to be a two-way street where not only are the teachers giving students feedback on their work as they're working and helping to support that work in progress, but I would love to see teachers constantly asking students for feedback about the lesson, the activities, the technology, all of those pieces so they can constantly be refining their practice. But in terms of 
really starting to kind of think about who is doing the thinking in this classroom, I encourage teachers to start building in that metacognitive skill building. So starting to think about the value of ending the week with kind of an end of the week exit ticket that's really just driving individual kids to think about their learning, identify a skill, a concept they learned. Think through, how did I learn this? What questions do I have? If if I was going to teach a peer, what kind of activity would I design to help somebody my age learn what I learned this week? And and really valuing kind of that that metacognitive practice in classrooms so that students can start to understand themselves as learners. If there's a teacher listening that's maybe a skeptic about the whole idea of blended learning because, <laughs> because of maybe their subject, maybe they say, well, it won't work in math or it won't work in history or it won't work in English. Like, where does it work best? Well, you, you know what you'll hear it most often is this won't work in AP classrooms because we're racing through material. And whenever I hear that this, you know, air quotes, won't work somewhere, I'm immediately thinking about, are we focused on racing through curriculum, that kind of like breadth of getting through stuff? Or do we want kids to actually understand what they're learning, be able to apply their learning to new and novel situations? Because if the goal is I have to get through it so they can memorize it, so they can pass a test... I mean, I don't even know how to respond to that because I don't see the value personally in that experience. Because if you look at the research about what kids actually retain, what they remember information-wise, it is so <laughs> it is so small. And so really, I feel like what we should be doing is, yeah, of course, we're going to be covering content, but we need to be focusing on skill development. And when we talk about skill development, kids need practice. They need experiences, so that experiential learning. They need to engage with peers and that social learning for those skills to really be developed and refined because it's those skills they're going to carry with them long after they leave our class. They're probably not going to remember a lot of the, the information we covered, but it's those skills that they honed that are going to be particularly useful for them. And hopefully we're teaching them skills like research skills where they can continue learning long after they've left our classes. You've written several books on blended learning. You have Blended Learning in Action, Power Up, Blended Learning. Um, but this newest one is, again, balance with blended learning. And that that term balance seems to really be where everything revolves for you. In fact, you, you've started your own podcast. It's called The Balance, if anybody wants to check that out. What's the deal? Why balance and blended learning together? I'm really concerned about the loss of spectacular human beings from the teaching profession. We are seeing just kind of this flight from teaching and I don't blame people. It's, it is such an exhausting profession on like a lot of different levels, a mental level, an emotional level. Um, and so for me, I think if we don't start to really shine some light on how we can approach this job in a sustainable way, we are going to continue to lose exceptional people from this profession. And one of the things that's been challenging, I think, particularly folks who have been teaching a while, is that technology, both in and outside of the classroom, are radically changing our lives, the way we communicate, <clears throat> the way we access information, the way we share, the way we engage with each other. And so as teachers are trying to figure out how do I 
how do I teach with the technology so that kids can use it successfully after they leave this classroom? It's, it's placed another strain on educators. And so my goal when I work with teachers is to try to help them figure out how to use different models that leverage technology and not technology all the time, because I don't want kids staring at a screen all day. That is not the objective for me. But how do we leverage technology to shift students to the center of learning, having them asking the questions, investigating topics, having conversations and making meaning together as a learning community? I Technology should open the door for all of those things. And the more we put students at the focus or at the center of learning, the less pressure we are to be at the center of the learning, the more we can be a support system for students guiding the learning. And so if you if you get the book and you start going through it, like what type of resources are in there for a teacher? I mean, is, is it broken down where you actually have like templates or, or what? Yeah. So I think one of my strengths, and I read several books on blended learning or a few books at the point before I wrote my first book. And I liked hearing the why. I, the research was interesting. The theory was interesting. But what I wanted as an educator was tangible resources. Like, what does this look like? How does I get, how do I get it done as an educator? And so in this book, so for example, I do talk about the, the value of forming a partnership with kids. And then I have a whole chapter on metacognitive skill building. And so I have several different ways that teachers can approach that strategies, resources, templates. Then I get into things like, you know, real time feedback and how you can use different models to create the space to give feedback. And then here are three different approaches to giving feedback. And here's how you can use technology if you're giving feedback on, you know, a document that's online to speed up that process. And here's a template for if you really want to give a more narrative kind of feedback approach. Um, I talk about the protocols I use for side-by-side assessment and how I make time to sit with individual kids to assess their work so they can hear why they're getting the scores they're getting on specific skills and get rid of all the kind of opacity that has kind of surrounded grading practices in the past. I talk about how to design rubrics so they can be a roadmap for kids and learning tools and assist in self-assessment. I talk about grade interviews and why it's important to give students agency when it comes to articulating what their grade should be and what the what the format that takes for my class has always been, and then tips for teachers who want to implement. So for me, it's about pinning all of this down into very practical strategies and resources that teachers can use that just makes it easier to kind of wrap their minds around it. And what's exciting is I'm starting to see teachers on Twitter posting pictures of their side-by-side assessment conversations and posting pictures of real-time feedback and saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe... I'm just starting this now. This is like such a game changer. And I just, I would love it to catch on like wildfire so that teachers realize like, it's not like we're not going to work outside of the classroom, but let's put our energy outside of the classroom into the aspects of this job that we find energizing, like lesson design. Let's not lug home massive amounts of paper that we're going to give feedback or grade in isolation and then hand it back and kids glance at the notes or the point value or the grade and then kind of like move on. 
Well, it's got to be rewarding to see teachers, you know, respond that way. So so congrats on that. Again, the book is Balance with Blended Learning. Um, this is Catlin Tucker talking to us. And uh, the you mentioned on Twitter, you not that you need a plug for me, you have like 50,000 followers on there. But <laughs> I don't know if you want to go ahead and tell us uh, your Twitter handle just in case somebody's not following. Yeah, it's at Catlin, C-A-T-L-I-N, not Caitlin, underscore Tucker. And I do try even with as many connections as I have on Twitter, I get a lot of questions, requests for resources, people asking me about things they're trying. So if you're looking for support in this space, definitely reach out. Um, I'm pretty available on Twitter. And uh, again, her uh, new podcast is called The Balance. And uh, best of luck with that. The reason the audio quality sounds like we're in the same room is because you must have some sort of studio set up there. So we, <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.